Welcome, Pathfinders, to the Find the Path podcast actual play of the Hell's Rebels Adventure Path, Rumor Mill number 16. Sweet 16. (laughs) (laughs) Goodness. Yes, so we are going to be talking about episodes 46, 47, and 48, as well as answering some emails. Woo. Indeed. Everybody excited. Uh, So these last couple episodes have been very exciting. Uh, So starting in episode 46... Uh, was when we uh, went to the holding house to free the Hell Knight Armagers. Things yep. went surprisingly well. I know. Yeah. It's interesting to see like how preparation pays off, right? Because like we went and we paid the money to get a really good forgery, and like we got lucky with. Well, I'm assuming we got lucky with some of the for deception checks to like convince them that we're all on the up and up. Well, fortunately, you guys, you had some bonuses because you rolled exceptionally well on securing some of the things. And you had some penalties mm. because you rolled exceptionally poorly on securing some mm. of the things, mm. yep. which kind of made it a bit of a wash. Mm. Fortunately, Jessica rolled pretty well. You guys didn't really yeah. do anything that drew a lot of uh, unwarranted, or I suppose in that case, it would have been warranted attention to yourself. <laughs> unwanted attention to yourself. Yes. It's like, technically, we really weren't supposed to be there, yes. but... <laughs> Well, but what I liked about it was like, even though, even if we're being successful, like Rick found a way to still make it tense, right? Like Mm. it's still, we're still, that's why I kind of do like the secret checks is for like moments like this when it's like, um, maybe, maybe not. Maybe she's kind of suspicious. Is she doing that thing where she's faking us out, having us go into the jail cell and then they'll arrest us? Like, (laughs) it's very like tense. Whereas like in like first edition, we would just roll it be like, oh man, I got a 35. I've crushed this. There's no way. Yeah, but here you're just not sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, She has them walk you into the back and it's like, release the chitin. No. <laughs> if you if you had done that, I'd have literally been like, man, that was a smart move because now we can't get out. <laughs> she wouldn't have said anything. She would have let us go in there with all the chains and then just locked the door behind us and left us in the room where the chitin can animate chains and impale us with them. <laughs> She'd have been like, oh, yes, they're yeah. right through right through here. Open the door and like walked us all in and be like, um, oh, no, I are stabbed. Yeah, well, we were doing that whole like sense motive. <laughs> Sense motive, sense motive, sense motive. Mm, yeah. Sense motive? There was a lot of sense motive. We were doing a lot of sense motive. Well, and even then, that? sense motive, you can't be sure that you actually got the right thing. So it's yeah. like, am I sense motiving correctly or <laughs> yeah. am I bugging myself out because I think that they think something, but they yes. don't? <laughs> well, I think at some point we had exact opposite thoughts. And then mm. I picked up that she was scared of the chain lady. And I think Cesare was the only one that knew what she was. And mm. oh yeah, I'm not sure that. Yeah. Real oh bad. yeah, which yeah. it wasn't a chitin. You said it's uh it's She something... is a chitin. She's a form of chitin. I thought chitin was the highest tier of what kind of creature they are. So interesting thing with uh with chitin. I'm actually not one hundred percent positive. This is actually a transition from first edition to second edition thing that we've seen a number of occasions. I mean chitins used to be just chain doubles. That was literally the yeah, name for chain doubles. That chain devils were chitons, and then they expanded that for chitons being their own thing, and now they've expanded it again, where Velstrak is the name of this outsider species that people commonly refer to as chitons. Chitons, however, is a quote-unquote misattribution that the Velstraks tolerate with cold amusement as the term chiton denotes a master or virtuoso amongst their kind. Uh, and these fiends enjoy being labeled as masters of their horde paths of perfection through agony. Agony, so so much fun. Yeah, fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> What's in a name? Like honestly, did we even stand a chance in the room with all those chains? Because the description Cesare got was, "Oh no, I'm not fighting her in here with chains that she can animate at will and use to impale people." It would have definitely been 
an unpleasant fight. The Evangelist Velstrax are very dangerous. Mm. Her AC of 24 is pretty impressive. Mm. Uh, not so yeah, impressive that good. you guys wouldn't be able to hit her probably some of the frontline people 50% of the time. Mm. And she does have a weakness against Silver. Okay. You did have that sword. That that helps. Yeah, Silver also deactivates her regeneration of 10, which oh, is really geez. useful. Jeez. So you were equipped with a weapon that would help you. However, you got a little bit of a taste of her unnerving gaze, which is unpleasant. Mm, yeah. Which also, when she's not uh, animating chains uh, to attack everything around her. The interesting thing with the animate chains is um, all the animate chains does is give her animates any chains within 20 feet and makes her makes it able for her to attack from any of those squares. Mm. So it doesn't give her oh. extra attacks. She can just But she has like super reach. Yeah, she can basically has mm. reach to attack anything in the room. Wow. Mm. That's cool. That's actually kind of cool. Which is coupled yeah. with the fact that she has attack of opportunity. Oh. I was going to say I was going to say she oh. has to have attack of opportunity oh. to go with that. Yeah. yeah. Well. And oh, in man. addition, if she critically hits with a chain, she impels the person in place where they gain mm -hmm. the grab condition is unable to recover from the persistent bleed damage oh. uh, that this does until they make a DC 25 escape check. Wow. Yeah, wow. I think Cesare barely passed to figure out what she was because he knew that she could animate chains and that he they use them to impale people and basically bleed them out. Yeah. So I'm like... <laughs> I mean, I don't know about everybody's, but Nikola's armor class was definitely lower wearing the scale mail than it is with his usual armor. But yeah, uh, so yeah, I'm I'm real glad we didn't fight her. Real, real glad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we did glad. get close to to almost fighting her when like Cesare kind of like lost it at seeing his uh, nephew mm. being tortured. Yeah, it's not pleasant. I also mm. somewhat like slash dislike the fact that, uh, and I I think this might be for all Velstrak, that they have a special ability called Pain Sight. Ooh. That uh, means that they automatically know if a creature has the doomed, dying, or wounded condition. Uh, so oh. that they can specifically target them. Oh. Good. <laughs> okay. Right. So oh, they're one of those enemies that's like, oh, you're dying. Let's make that worse. Yes. Horrifying. Oh, it would have definitely I, I, been I an like interesting it. fight. Mm. Interesting, he says. <laughs> yeah, but despite some, uh, I guess, what, what would we call that? Uncharacteristic caring of Cesare the guard. Uh, <laughs> we did manage to. Uh, Cesare the guard. I don't want to say browbeat, but like convince the, uh, the creature that we really needed them now we basically used the power of mortal law and went no yeah. like yes they're yeah. awful i yeah. mean yeah they're still devils even if they're a subspecies they're still devils well technically yeah, they they're not devils they are fiends but they are not mm. devils you know the the difference between the uh the chitons and the the devils you know they're no longer related to one another as uh chitons or velstrax in this case are actually all inhabitants of the plane of shadow so no Which longer happens. But hell. they're still lawful because I'm imagining they align with yes, it, it is a lawful evil. who's lawful. Mm. <laughs> they're lawful evil creatures, yes. And it shows that there's like this overlap as, uh, in a lot of these uh, instances with like Zonkathon and Asmodeus in terms of mm. like, eh, you know, we're, we're cool with like a little light torture and things like that because it's not illegal if we don't say it's illegal. They're both lawful evil societies. I mean, mm. they're... Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're not going to have too much friction when it comes yeah, to that yeah. aspect. Although there is the idea of what law is actually the law. So there is a little bit of like, I follow the law of hell. I do not care about your mortal laws, like that kind of thing. There's lots yeah, of little you can, loopholes. You can get into that, the whole that. generalities of that specifically. Although, generally speaking, like, it's the interesting thing of the, the lawful evil side of especially like nations like, you know, Nidal and Chiliax, where all of these things that are 
unabashedly evil are also lawful. But there are certain things that it's like the the general concept of murder. You know, murder is bad. Uh, however, of course, and obviously this is pure evil, the fact that they don't consider slaves people means mm-hmm. that murdering them is not illegal because they are evil, evil people. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting to look at, like, there's, like, a bare set of kind of agreements that have to be made in a, in a functional society, and, like, murder is yeah. usually one of them, theft is usually, you know, frowned upon, but then there's, like, so much gray area around that that's where, like, all the different societies end up kind of differing. It is somewhat interesting with uh, planes or or structures like devils have, where you can say, like, there's the classic argument of, you know, I'm lawful because I believe in the ideals of law, even if I don't adhere to a specific set of laws. With uh, a lot of devils and things like that, Asmodeus has a full book of every single applicable situation that could ever occur. Mm-hmm. That makes and sense. so it's like there is technically a law that applies to each one of those. Now, whether or not every single devil knows every one of those, you imagine that hell has its own form of punishment. I would love to see the, a prison mm-hmm. break in hell from yeah. hell's prison for devils that break the law. Dude, which would I'm be really you, interesting. Paizo, get on that adventure <laughs> path. That would be fun. <laughs> but it, it's always the interesting thing, again, of, uh, you know, when you're dealing with a creature like this where it's hard as a game master, and I'm sure, you know, any of us that have been in the game master seat can attest to this. It's sometimes hard for me to put myself fully into the otherworldly head of an outsider, a creature that in no way thinks like a human does. Yeah. Because... Yeah, in the prophecy where they have the entire argument of you never want to meet an angel because they're so inhuman that they don't think about morality in the way that mortals do, only the adherence to the divine word. That's why Christopher Walken was so good in that. Wasn't that him? Christopher Walken mm-hmm. was great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, mm. I mean, he's a little otherworldly anyway. And uh, Viggo Mortensen was great. Viggo Mortensen as Lucifer at the end of that movie is flipping amazing. Yeah. Anyway, well, go it's check also out why prophecy, like but... sci-fi first contact is a really like interesting oh, yeah. kind of like thought experiment because you're talking about alien societies that don't have any concept of morality, maybe in, in similarity to what we think of. And they may think, for instance, like eating with your mouth uh, is a horrible, gross experience, you know, but for us, it's just like normal. So again, it makes me <laughs> I don't know why I immediately went back to that uh, TNG first season episode where like Wesley steps on some flowers and they're like, now you have to be yes, murdered. Yes, that and they're like, because all of our <laughs> crimes are pun- are punishable by death. Nobody ever breaks the law, and they're and he's just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, technically that would work, I guess. Exactly. No, that's the thing. It's like it totally works. It makes a, a completely law abiding society. Yeah. Well, as long as you're caught, I'm sure that there are still some people that are desperate enough that they would still break the law because of the situations that they're placed in. Mm. Oh yeah. Anyway, you fortunately did yeah. not have to fight that chitin. It's yeah, true. so we managed to get uh, all of the armagers out, uh, taking us up to episode 47, where we had a surprisingly easy time getting them out of the holding house and into our carriage. Relatively Pilford speaking. Carriage. I think yeah. once we dealt with the Velstrak, that was like the, the big thing. and That then... was like the big crescendo, and then it was kind of the denouement of like, all right, now you, you got through the hard part, yeah. Mm. I can't remember where I read the uh, the breakdown that was talking about story structure. I'm sure maybe one of the teachers, the English majors here could probably get into that. But it is that idea of um, you formulate a plan, you set up the plan, you execute the plan, and then from standard story structure, that is when the fault in the plan arises, hmm. which in this case was that there is a freaking chitin in there, mm-hmm. which yep, then yep, makes yeah. you reevaluate your plan. To be fair, you guys actually succeeded to the point where you didn't even have to reevaluate your plan. It was just that was the road bump it wasn't, okay, well, we fought and murdered this chitin, and now we're all covered in blood, so. 
let's hope that no one heard that. Let's wait 10 minutes or so while Cesare prestidigitizes everyone to try to make us look clean, kind of walk out and be like, that's fine. It's all good. They're not going to check. It's the interesting thing with uh, with tabletop gaming, with doing an actual play that is actually us just playing the game, where sometimes a plan just works, even though yeah. our expectation is for the plan to fall apart because we're mm-hmm. so used to watching these narratives. You guys put in the, the legwork, you got everything set up, and the plan just worked for you. So I think Jordan kind of sums that up where Jordan was saying, surprisingly, it went off smoothly. Yeah. Yep. Like, well, I mean, you guys put in the legwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, even when we put in the legwork and stuff, you know, one really bad roll is all it takes for yep. everything to go to crap. You know, yes. that's the nature of the, like Rick was saying, though, that's the nature of these games. So yeah. you just, you know, you never know what the dice are going to do. It's true. I think that's part of, uh, now I'm getting into to talking overall about actual plays, but uh, I think that is part of the, the appeal of actual plays is because it is random dice rolls, it's different than listening to a standard narrative because mm. you could have this entire buildup about Lucia coming into her own and becoming separate from her family and all the rest of that, and then she gets critically shot in the back by a crossbow bolt and dies. Yep. Yeah. That would never happen. There wouldn't, there'd normally be this big buildup to a character death, and instead it's always abrupt. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times, yeah. That's the appeal is like it's non-standard story structure and yes. it it is literally every time we go into a fight, it is possible one of us or all of us dies, right? Like yeah. there's no like plot armor or heavy scripting where we're always going to come out on top. We, the players, we, the, you know, the actors on the stage don't even know if we're going to make it to the next episode. Yeah, they kind of <laughs> could have been murdering everyone. And then it's just like, OK, well, the three of us left run for our lives. It's like, sorry, armagers, we'll punch out a guard or two on the way. Try to keep up. Mm. <laughs> Try to keep up. Yeah. <laughs> but fortunately, it didn't go that way. It did not. Yep, so we did manage to uh, make our way out of the city, uh, playing it cool, uh, I think being overly paranoid also, um, Mm. playing in our favor because, yeah, they did check inside to make sure that everybody was still chained in and that the number of Mm. people were correct and all that, so... Uh, yeah. I mean, we they did do manage have to, protocols. <laughs> yeah, we did manage to, you know, use their, their love of rules and regulations against them. The yeah. best uh, thing. In, in order to get uh, the armagers back to Lictor Octavio, uh, and... Uh, so, yeah, he's got his uh, Order of the Torrent kind of yeah. sort of back. He did yeah. a whole yes. big, you guys can leave if you want to. And then all of them are like, we'll stay with you. Oh, Captain, yeah. my Captain. Yep. Yeah, yeah. very oh, Captain, yep. my Captain. And it seems that we potentially have a new team to work with the Silver Ravens as well now. As yeah. soon as we find the hideout Octavio's told us about where it's yeah. protected from scrying. We need to get them back into the city, of course. But, you know, until then. Yep. But they also did show us a hidden entrance into the city to get mm-hmm. into the uh, the salt market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little smuggler's so tunnel. Yeah, so that's nice. So we, now we have a way to get out of the city without having to pay the toll if we want to. And also without being observed, which is always useful. Which, yeah. you know, also a nice plus. So that was pretty fun. Um, and then that takes us into episode 48 of us uh, going to said safe house um, and finding some goodies. Everybody loves well, goodies. one of the safe houses, not the one that's protected oh, against true. Strive. Yeah, we, one of their mm-hmm. safe houses. A bunch of safe houses now. It's always good to have a safe house because you never know when you're going to need to disappear. Like the next time Lucia is being ca- chased by the Dotari, she'll have somewhere to run to. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we did also uh, inform Citronia of uh, our success. And then she's like, hey, you guys need another hideout? And we're like, two in one episode? Wow. Yes. <laughs> It's yes, true. <laughs> so that was interesting. Uh, I did not expect that Citronia would be like, yeah, here's another safe house that's, you know, just my basement. 
So to a degree, Saturnia's option is a little different than the mechanical safe house benefit. Uh, more mm, or less, she's provided yeah. all of you with a meeting space. So it's like if we need to do another meetup on this side as opposed to the other side. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, not really set up for a large group of people, and it's a little bit more high traffic. Yeah. But it's it's a good place for people to hide if they really yes. need to, like, you know, one of the teams needs to hide in the basement, you know? Yeah. Mm. And it's a better meeting space than Nicolo's tiny apartment. Also That's this. also true. Yeah. <laughs> so all of you with your, you can just talk, stop down there with your bedrolls. Not that I think any of you carry bedrolls, because most of you, I don't even it think really care. It would look really weird walking through the city like with like adventurers packs on, you know. I was going to say, I think the understanding is like we have them, but they're in our I mean, if you bought an adventurer's kit, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah. 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 has a whole backpack full of crap, like with rope and all the it's normal the stuff that you yeah. would buy that yeah. he doesn't take with him when we're cr- around the city. He does have a bedroll and a blanket. I think he even has a pup tent, but you mm. know, just that standard like adventurer stuff, but he's not hauling that around the city. Because no, it would be really not. suspicious. It's like, oh, where are you going? Um, Camping. Nowhere. And you like, you know, try to hide your like giant backpack and yeah. your armor and your swords. Like, I'm not up to anything, suspicious officer. Yep, uh, I just, I just imagine Cesare has a, a dusty old like a storage closet or something that he opens it up and like a canoe nearly falls out on him and all the rest of this like camping gear just stuffed in there. It's like, ah, it's fine. <laughs> Skis. But yes. From there, we had a split, uh, and Cesare had had a little heart-to-heart with everybody's favorite NPC, Hedman Haste. Yeah, it's time, you know, it's, Cesare needed to come clean before that relationship got any further along, you yeah. know. Which, thank you for modeling healthy relationships. Don't <laughs> wait until you're a year into the relationship to be like, by the way, I have a deep, dark secret. <laughs> <laughs> also, Hedman had a crazy secret. Also, yeah. what the heck, yeah. man? Yeah, yeah. secret. I did not. Yeah, that's true. I did not call him as Rose of Cantargo, so that was a very good twist. Yeah, I, very didn't, cool. I didn't see that coming, but I figured I was like, there has to be more to Hedeman. Just, I don't know. I just he's had too that so- cool. He's too <laughs> interesting of an I NPC. I he's like a cool backer, you know. I yeah, I did feel like he was probably part of some rebellion shenanigans, but I didn't know he was the rebellion. <laughs> yeah. Oh goodness. And awesome. he already knows who all of us are and everything. It's true. He's keeping tabs on us because he left that rose for uh, Nicola that one time. Yeah. <laughs> well, he seems to be keeping tabs on Nicola. I don't know if he knows necessarily all everything about the rest I mean, he of He gave us. me five roses at one point, so. Yeah, he knows because he we knows all talked to him. We yeah. all yeah. talked to him like, at one point, yeah. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know all our deep dark secrets. Uh, yeah, he doesn't know all our secrets. He just knows that we're all working together. That you know of. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. True. Super stealth vigilante. <laughs> I mean, who knows? But that's crazy that he's uh, he's been the Rose the whole time. And, like, he even said he has his own people investigating, like, some of the, like, missing people in Old Cantargo and stuff. Mm. Like, the murder. Amazing. But, yeah, no, that was uh, that was really cool. I mean, we've uh, we've hopefully got uh, some more information on looking into the murders or, well, potentially the double crime of both the murders and the kidnappings. Yeah, Hedeman had one of his followers, or the one of the followers of Milani was murdered, and he has mm. her body in his basement and can cast speak with dead. So I figure that's a pretty good lead for us to that's investigate next episode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we did do CSI Kentargo uh, oh, yeah. in the Pathfinder universe, every investigator would have speak with dead. Well, I mean, <laughs> um, I think yeah. it's uncommon. I don't think it's it one of those things uncommon, you can just no. pick up anymore. I think that's specifically why they made it uncommon is because it's 
it almost removes the need for the standard like foot investigations or you have to get into like every murderer every time they kill someone rips their jawbone off so that yeah. they can't speak with dead with them or yeah. all the rest well, of that. Well, there's they another did. one-y spell called Red Hand of the Killer that you can cast yeah. and it paints the, the killer's hands red for the duration of the spell. So like you can literally be like, who killed this man? And like start looking at everybody's palms to figure yeah. out like who, who, who yeah. done it. <laughs> I think I mentioned this before. It's part of the reason that I like the 2E investigator more than the 1E investigator. Yeah, and a lot of the archetypes for it, I remember being like, eh, these just don't really fit with anything. Like, I ended up not using half of the stuff that I would get from my 1E investigator. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely enjoying the 2E one because it yeah. does feel more investigative. <laughs> mm. Again, it gets back to the whole, you don't have that Holmesian, you know, deduction sort of thing. It'd just be like, Holmes, who do you think did it? That guy. Why? <laughs> uh, because the voices in my head tell me that he did after I cast a spell. <laughs> Where's the fun in that? <laughs> it's too easy. I, I want the whole Sherlock moment where he's going through in his head. All right. Punch him in the jaw. Dislocate his knee. You know, all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was thinking uh, more yeah. along the lines of it's like the shadows on the floor don't match up with the position of the sun. <laughs> I mean, that too, but a little it's bit the of German a word for anger. Anyway. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> yes, I do hope that we get our own little... Uh, a uh, squad of uh, Milani followers because I know like uh, Nicolo follows Milani now. Lucia follows Milani. So we've got some Milani followers mm -hmm. in our group. So that will be delightful. Yeah, actually, uh, I am too. I just keep it very close to the vest. Yeah. I think uh, only Nicolo knows that technically. I don't know because... Lucia's only told the Bellflower Network. She hasn't told anybody else. The only hint that I gave was that uh, whenever we were all staying at Nicolo's, I got up during the night and said a mm. prayer at the shrine. No, and I think Rick uh, had us roll perception, and Nicolo was the only one who ah, rolled well that, enough to right, notice. That's yeah. right. That so yeah, Nicolo's probably the only one that suspects that. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, he hasn't said anything because, like, well, I mean, it's an underground faith that people don't necessarily want to admit. Yeah. I do appreciate so. all of the we have three worshippers of Milani and all three of us are like let's make sure nobody else knows that we follow Milani. <laughs> Meanwhile Adria's like I'm not really religious I used to follow Vesmara. Chester is really over all the whole divine deity bullsh crap so you know he, mm -hmm. he wears a holy symbol of Serenray because his sister who is a priestess of Serenray helped him on his ditch in the Asmodeus thing but it's more like a reminder to not be a jerk more than I'm actually faithful <laughs> to Seren Ray. You, know? you get that feeling yeah. of it just kind of gets a little bit tighter every time you have mean thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. The old folks are over here like, eh, religion. We don't know. And you also got a little bit of uh, the backstory as far as uh, Hedeman was concerned in a possible... Yeah, we need to find his mother and murder her, and then we need yeah. to help his dad. We so have to I'm save just, his father. You know... This is our new most important mission. <laughs> yes, that is now on our back burner of, we got to get powerful enough that we can help the dad. Yeah. Yeah. I want to help the dad. He mm -hmm. makes me sad. Yeah. We got a long way to go because Hedeman, I think, is the level or two on us. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, right. Y'all yeah. ready for some emails? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I suppose we should jump in. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, we have one email today, and this email comes from Mason from Roseburg, Oregon. Uh, hey, Mason. Says maybe from Wardle in Varicia. Okay. Okay, that yeah. sounds good. Yeah. yeah, I don't know where Wardle is, but All you're I from there now. I think it's I, I literally was like, yeah. I, that's literally what I thought. Like water I thought you said Wordle like the game. No, oh, yeah. W-A-R-T-L-E. I, I think it's pronounced yeah. with an A. I think it's Wartle. Wartle? Yeah, Wartle is a uh, 
frontier trading post primarily populated by swampers and trappers who do not mind the inhospitable environment of the mush fins. Sweet. Hmm. Apparently, uh, all the houses rise up out of the murky water on stilts connected by wooden Ooh. boardwalks. Hmm. That sounds fun. Oh, that Major sounds cool. Major exports of the town are uh, peat, fungus, and furs, mostly sent down the Yondabakari River to Magnamar. The town does support a few uh, successful brothels and a precariously tilted tavern called the Lean To. I like love that. it. <laughs> the Lean To. Which serves a local <laughs> liqueur called Bog Grog. Oh, nice. Bog Grog. Oh, dear. Nice. Terrible. It's going to be terrible. terrible. That Let's sounds like it'll take, you know, the paint off a wall. Let's yeah. 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 <laughs> and the lining out your stomach. That'll grow some hair on your chest. <laughs> that sounds exactly like, I don't know if anybody here has had it because I haven't. Uh, ranch water? Um, no. Which is apparently an alcoholic beverage that sounds terrible because it basically say, sounds like tequila sounds and water. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It sounds like Not it good. will cause blindness. <laughs> yep. No fun. But uh, Mason writes, hello there, find the path crew. Hello. 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 hello, Mason. Hello. I've been wanting to play Hell's Rebels for ages, and it always sounded like such an awesome adventure with a fantasy Star Wars feel. <laughs> Alas, I only have one group that enjoys Pathfinder, and we've been working through Rise of the Rune Lords and some homebrew adventures for years, so I'd given up on getting to experience it, but then I discovered you guys and gals were running it, and I'm loving every second. Thank you. It's good to hear. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Rise of the Rune Lords, also very good. True, yes. When it comes to picking a new campaign, how do you guys do it? Does the GM decide on their own which AP they want to run, or do you do a group poll or something to see what everyone is interested in? And does Rick ever get to be a player in your home games? (laughs) (laughs) He used to. First off, yeah, we don't do home games anymore. We do this, this podcast. Yeah, we can't exactly Let's do home time. games. say time. Time. It was, it was always a group discussion. It was kind of mm-hmm. one of those, hey, I'm interested in this one, and then we, you know, talk about it. Back in the day, we actually scheduled it out, so we would have, like, the next two or three in, in yeah. the queue. We were doing them chronologically for a while. Mm. And then we started, like we started skipping with around. Rise and then we're just going one after the next, but then we uh, ended up scripting, skipping around some. It's that problem of like, we would find like a new adventure path would come out and we'd be like, man, we really want to play strange aeons. And then we'd go play, you know, like go through, do that instead of going back through everything in order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of times, um, if I remember correctly, cause it's been five years since the last time we, uh, we did something that wasn't recorded. Yeah. I would just approach you guys with a couple of them. I remember the first time actually with uh, Jess, Jordan, and Rachel because they had not played an adventure path before. And uh, I think there were like 18 or 16, 18 of them out at that point. I just went through all of them and just Mm. went like, here's the basic rundown of what each of these are, which is when you guys settled on Legacy of Fire, which was the first one I ran for y'all. Heck yeah. And then after that, a lot of times it was like, I really want to run Rise of the Rune Lords because I want to do the Rune Lords trilogy at some Mm. point. I think having player input is very important in deciding because you want people to play something that they're interested in. Yeah, uh, But at the same time, for the GM actually running a game, if you're not interested in running it... Everybody mm. has to want to play it. Yeah. Yep. I think presenting people with like three to five options because there are so mm-hmm. many adventure paths is probably yeah. the best way of going about it. Yeah, and I know like... Uh, so like as far as Rick being a player, he has been a player before. Um, so we've yes. done... Uh, let's see, Carrying Crown was run by Ross. I did Serpent Skull and the mm-hmm. first two books of um, Iron Gods mm. before that kind of fell apart because yeah. time. Yeah, back in the day, uh, Ross also ran me through Curse of the Crimson Throne and yeah. uh, up to book five of Kingmaker. Unfortunately, that yeah. one we didn't finish, but True. that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. That one sticks with me. I do still want to play that at some point. Uh, yeah. yeah. Whether that's one E or two E, because uh, I, I have a feeling that's one of the ones that like it, you never play the same twice. 
Yeah. It it has definitely ways to turn out differently for sure. It actually uh, one one thought process I had before, and I've never needed to implement it. But depending upon your group, it might actually be a good idea. Is uh, instead of just sitting down and talking with everyone about what you want to play, and instead sitting down and s- or sending out an email with uh, like the five adventure paths that you want to run, telling each of your players to put them in order. Mm. That way, it's not like the mm-hmm. one quiet player just gets talked over by like the three louder players or something like that so that you can find or it might even end up being a compromise if you assign like a point system of you know number yeah, one like rank five choice points. voting or something yeah you know rank choice voting basically and just go okay well it's no one's number one choice but it was enough people's number two choices that everyone is kind of interested in this one yeah so that if you do have that one very loud player that uh, insists on one thing and is thinking to kind of browbeat or convince everyone else around them to play something that they're not as interested in yeah, and I'd, I'd say for like new players, because I've run new players through Adventure Path, specifically Rain of Winter. Um, I they were friends of mine, and so like I knew kind of what they would like, and so was able to kind of give some recommendations around like, hey, I think you guys would really enjoy Rain of Winter. It's based on Russian mythology, you know, that has some really interesting like lore stuff. And that was playing with two English teachers and a translator for uh, uh, deaf ed students, and so like. Mm-hmm. That they were like, wow, that sounds really cool, you know. Whereas another group may be like, man, I'm really into uh, Egyptology, and so like, you know, Mummy's Mask would be a great fit for them. So yeah. I think if you do know, yeah. like, if the players maybe don't know themselves what they're kind of looking for, if you know them, then that can kind of help you guide them where to go. Yeah. Uh, one thing I will also state, um, and again, this doesn't seem like this applies to your group, although anyone else that's listening, uh, if you're doing an adventure path, do one of the earlier adventure paths in the rule set that you're using, because mm, the yeah. further if, if you're looking at 1E, the further you go along, the more it's like, this is a monster from Bestiary 4, Bestiary 5, yeah. Bestiary 6. You're using Here's six a class that came out in, like, Ultimate Combat, you know? Yeah. Again, yeah. if it's yeah. first edition, get used to learning the Magus really well. Yeah. Because <laughs> they love the Magus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rise of the Rune Lords is, of course, a great option for that. Curse of the Crimson Thrones Anniversary Edition is also a great option for an early campaign that's not going to use a ton of optional rules. Yeah, that's fair, especially if you're just starting, uh, especially with like 1E. There are probably what, like a hundred books that you would probably potentially need for like, you know, Tyrant's Grasp, The Last Adventure Path and 1E. That's I mean, not a hundred books, but it, it is you're pulling from so many different sources. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That you you have to keep track of all of that. And in second yeah. edition, funny enough, in second edition, I've heard a lot of people tell say not to go with the first Adventure Path. Yeah. Age of Ashes. Mm. Huh. Because uh, from what I understand, it is it very much on the hard side mm. uh, that they were still getting the balancing act of the difficulty with the new system down. And I've heard it is uh, it's a bit of a meat grinder at points. <laughs> That's understandable. So either yeah, either don't go I with mean, or um, go with a five party group and don't adjust <laughs> the difficulty. Yeah, because I think that's fair. Because like I think um, Rise of the Rune Lords, I found uh, was actually pretty difficult. Like it, it it's had a difficult. lot of a lot of difficult things. Like if it had been my first AP, I probably would not have survived as well as I did. <laughs> mm. it, it's difficult. It is um, because it is very old school. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Curse of the Crimson Throne, I honestly think might be a better suggestion for most people's first adventure path. 
Yeah. I did love Curse. Yeah. It's a pretty solid one. And it's an anniversary edition and it's a phenomenal adventure path. Have fun uh, yeah, in Scarwall. I was going to say the fifth book <laughs> yeah. is a doozy. <laughs> it has its old school moments too. Yeah, it, it does. It very much does. But I think that's the the fun of, of Pi's adventure path. So it's like yeah. if you have a more traditional group, there's an AP for you. If you're wanting to do a little bit something different and new, then you have those like more experimental adventure paths. So again, you can kind of curate it to your party. Yeah. So Mason goes on to say, I have to say, one of my favorite things about actual play podcasts is seeing how interactive everyone is. Your whole crew is so engaged in the game mechanics, the story, their own character, the NPCs, etc. I love all my friends dearly, but it seems that each of my groups always has at least one or two players who are there for some of the social aspect, but they don't put in the time and effort to really get to know the game or mm. get into their character or the role play or don't pay attention. Most of the time it's fine, but sometimes it does bother me as a GM when they aren't engaged when I put so much effort into the story and preparing mm. everything. How did you all come together? Was it luck that you all came together as engaged players or did it take time to find a full crew that is invested? If so, how do you help get players more invested in the game so everyone has a richer experience? Okay, well, um, Heather and I have known each other since high school. Yeah. At this mm -hmm. point, we've known each other longer than we haven't, and that yeah. makes me feel so old. Anyway. Yeah, we, we, started, we started gaming together back when we were 16, so that was yeah. like 20 years ago. Oh my god, why'd you say that? Shh, I'm gonna yep. go die of old age What's funny enough was when uh, was 3.0 had first come out, and so uh, we were playing some uh, 3.0 as far as uh, Dungeons & Dragons was concerned, and 3.5 and all the rest of that. a lot of, of White Wolf. And then uh, Heather ended up working at a comic book shop with Ross. Yes. Yo. And so, uh, so Ross kind of tacked on. We again, you know, Heather and I had a game group back then that eventually just kind of fell apart. And then uh, Ross came up, and you know, from uh, I suppose uh, that expanded. You know, adding Ross into the gaming group. Ross was the only uh, the only survivor um, from the various people. <laughs> you make that were it sound like I like one. eliminated the other people or something. <laughs> Ross survived the challenge. You of die the in the game. You <laughs> die in real life. <laughs> I volunteered as tribute, and uh, yeah. yeah. And then um, Rachel and I started dating after uh, after Rachel got back from her trip to Korea years later on. And then uh, Rachel I've and Jessica, Rachel of course, have been friends. High school. Yeah, since high school. Yeah, we we have also been friends longer than we haven't. Yeah, since so like sophomore year for <laughs> yeah. me. Um, and then I started dating Jordan after I got sheer back dump, from Korea. Sheer dumb luck on my part. Yeah, Jordan's just <laughs> off in the ether. I, I, I literally was just all on my own and then started dating Jess and then fell in with this group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a comet hurtling through space that gets caught in the gravitational field of a larger yes. mass of nerddom. And then we press ganked him. <laughs> Yeah. But I, I remember it was like one of these, like, I think Jess was like broaching him. He's like, hey, do you want to you want to try out Pathfinder? It's kind of like D&D. &D. And I was like, do I? Because <laughs> I'd always wanted to play growing up, but I never knew anybody who played. So I was yeah. like, I will yeah, totally give this to a shot. We tried to play a few times in high school with like beginner's boxes and things. But D&D, uh... &D, uh, I think, or just any tabletop RPG, I believe Rick was the one who told me it's kind of like drugs. You almost need yep. to know someone. You got to know a guy. It, yeah, it kind of is like that. Yeah. And I, I think... <laughs> I mean, that's true. But I think a lot of uh, how people approach the game and how people play the game comes from their first game master that they do a long-term mm -hmm. thing with because then you get used to that style and that's how you're used to playing. Yeah. 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 If a lot of your experience is at your local game store and it's just, you know, quick scenarios of then you sit down with a role-play group, it's kind of a different environment. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of it, like I said, has to do with 
who taught you to play the game and what was their style? And yeah. that's well, kind well, of what, what you take. What do you want out of the game? Yeah. Like, mm. We're all that's story right. people, so we yeah. want a story. Yeah. Yeah. Jessica raises uh, an extraordinarily valid point. You get out of it what you put into it, and you have to know what you want out of it. So I, mm. if your players are a group that goes, we just want to play a game, and it doesn't matter to us if it's Pathfinder or if it's Betrayal at House on the Hill or yeah. you know Pandemic or whatever, if it's like we just want to play a game, uh, that's a little bit different than saying, well, I want to tell a story that evokes real emotions from everyone and gets these deep feelings. Neither across. one of those are incorrect ways to play the game. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with just approaching it as a we're going to kill the monsters and get better loot to kill more monsters. There's nothing wrong with that. This is going to sound somewhat terrible of me, so I'm going to preface it with that. But there's a reason why Heather and Ross are some of the few people that I've carried on in like the gaming group that I have over time because I have had to ask people to leave the table because mm. they make other people uncomfortable or things like that. Yeah. I have sometimes just had to say, it's like, look, I, I think maybe a different group would be better for you because you're not interested any time that you're not rolling a die to try to kill something. And that's not the story that I want to tell. Yeah. Fortunately, in the case with uh, Jess, Jordan, and Rachel, all three of them were already interested in the story element of it. Yeah. I'll admit a certain degree of reticence whenever I was like, okay, yeah, Rachel, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll teach you how to play and everything else. And then she's like, oh, by the way, can Jessica join me? It's like, oh, no, Jessica. Oh, and also this Jordan guy. I'm like, mm, yeah, just mm, a random dude. That's, she's that's an unknown X factor there. I'm not sure about this. <laughs> I, don't remember, I don't even remember how long Jess and I had been dating, but it was not very long yeah. before I got the Fortunately, he's a giant nerd, so it worked out. <laughs> I will acknowledge that we are extremely lucky to have yes. met yeah. each other and become the friends and everything that we are and have this kind of gaming group. A lot of people struggle to find groups that they get that they can have a long term mm. game with. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, we are we are extremely fortunate. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I think someone in answer to the question, it is one part luck and it is one part Skill. taking time to find a full crew that is invested. Yeah. Kind of uh, picking and selecting. I've, I've always heard uh, I've always heard the term poaching used where it's a, a game master that will go to like tables at like uh, cons or tables at your local gaming store and then find the player there that works for them. And then like take them off to the side at some point and be like, I'm putting together a home game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm putting together a team. It's that whole idea of like a player coming in to poach other players for their home game. I've heard that terminology used it's before. It's like the merchant from Resident <laughs> Evil 4, you know, what you, what you buying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Got rare players on sale, stranger. <laughs> yes. As far as uh, helping players get more invested, first off, figure out whether or not they want to be more invested. Like if it's yeah, just a board yeah. game to them. It might be just something... You sit down and go, hey, I've noticed you're not really engaged at, at this part of the story. Is there something, you know, yeah. we could do differently? You know, what do you like about the game? Just talk to your players, you know, if you feel like there's a disconnect. Communication is a huge part of these kind of games. And mm -hmm. I know I have social anxiety. Like if I like the live shows, you guys don't even want to know how stressed I am during those. <laughs> so I get that sometimes those are that's a hard thing to do, but it really will help your game if you sit down and ask those kind of questions like what do you want out of this why you know what parts do you like what parts do you not like would you rather i approach this differently just that way everything's out on the table and you don't feel like your players are unengaged when maybe that's not the case mm. yes even putting a questionnaire to them isn't necessarily a bad thing 
You know, yeah. just if, you, if you're not comfortable sitting down and talking to them face to face, if that causes you anxiety, just send out a questionnaire. It's like, you know, are you interested in these things? And again, it gets to the question of, is this the right game for you? If uh, if you're not interested in the side of the game, there's no wrong way necessarily yeah. to play Pathfinder as long as everyone is having no. fun. But no. sometimes it is that problem when you have six people all sit down like we even run into that sometimes as a group where all six of us sit down and some of us might want something out of a story that the rest of us don't. Yeah, mm. it happens. If it's a player that's I'm never interested in having a character romance. Well, then that's that's you. I mean, maybe that yeah, player yeah. is just not interested in romance personally, or maybe they're just not comfortable with trying to do a romance scene while four other people are sitting there listening to them try to carry on this like loving scene between them and the mm. game master pretending to be a different person. Or you're like me and Rach, where we had characters in a relationship and would be flirting with each other in front of like, you know, her Everyone. husband. So <laughs> that's an awkward one. I, I already have to deal with all the fan base constantly shipping Rachel and Ross's characters. So. <laughs> I'm very comfortable in my relationship. And we all know it's just in the game. That's, yeah. you know, it's yeah, just, it's, but it's, sometimes it's, it is kind of a hilarious situation afterwards yes. when you're thinking mm. about it. It's like, hey, I just spent an hour and a half learning with Rachel and it's hilarious, you know? One <laughs> small side tangent. The only time I tried to play like romance my own husband, we did it by both being Vikings and competing. For the <laughs> and it was funny. It was, and it was fun funny. as heck. I, I won't name names, but, um, I did have two previous players that were in a relationship that uh, it really bothered one of them that the other player's characters always hated his character. Like they would <laughs> never do a romance. They would just always, always hated yep. his character. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the last thing that I just throw out is uh, it's quite possible that if your players are not invested, as much as I hate to even say this, also decide whether or not it's Pathfinder. Um, it's mm. quite possible that they might be more invested if they were playing vampire or if yeah. they were playing blades in the dark or if they were mm. playing another game personally i absolutely love pathfinder but i do understand that for some people the fantasy setting isn't what they're interested in. maybe they're more interested in starfinder yeah it might just be that the the setting or even the setting specifically for that adventure if they're not interested in the rise of the rune lords setting and that's what's causing them not to be engaged maybe they would be more interested in something like hell's rebels Pathfinder is all about relationships at the table. Yeah. Um, it's the same way as like, you know, your personal relationships, professional relationships. Nobody's a mind reader. So like it may be kind of an awkward conversation, but it's worth having even just to know, like, is it something that you can fix or you're willing yeah. to fix? Or is it something that like, is it a comfort level? Like they're just like, hey, man, I just, you know, I'm not comfortable yet. Like, give me a couple of weeks and I'll be fine. I mean, that could be the case, too. Yeah. It's exactly I think what we've all kind of come back around to is it is talk to them make sure you listen to them and then implement what would aid them in uh, in enjoying this. And sometimes it honestly might also just be distraction. I've noticed that with so many groups and seen yep. that with so many things mm -hmm. where it's, if you have the one person that's checking out their phone until their turn comes back around, you know, decide yeah. whether or not, we never went fully there, but I did, I think I did ask everyone to silence their phones a lot of times, even before yeah. we did yeah. the recordings. And Rick would call us out if we were on it too much yeah. too. Like not in a mean way, but just be like, hey, well, yeah, I, I would literally yeah. just go if someone is looking at their phone and doing something and, uh, you know, we during a lot of times where people were dealing with sick family members or difficult mm. situations, if I noticed someone's in their phone a lot, I just kind of stop and just go like, do you, do you need to take this? Like, do you need to step yeah. away and call this person or do we need a moment? Yeah, that's just being respectful because we do all have busy lives. Yeah. yeah. We have lives outside the game. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, it is, I think, understandable for everyone to go, well, we've set aside this time to do this thing as a friend group. 
So asking someone to give you their full attention, I don't think is is rude. I'm sure that both of our teachers can understand the difficulties of getting people's full attention. But at least I'm not dealing with 30 yeah. people at a time. So. I mean, I, I literally ran an entire adventure path where I learned that uh, I needed to let the players do their their interpersonal talking for the first hour. Because yeah. otherwise they would be throughout the game. They'd be, oh, I, did I tell you about such and such and such thing? You know, and so I just learned to like, you know, let them go for the first like hour, get it out of their system. And then we would focus and we'd play. You know those little clicker <laughs> things that you use for dogs to get their attention? Just click, 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 click. <laughs> Attention back here. Attention back here. Anyway. All right. Mason continues. Last question for the day. With the whole group transitioning from PF1 for Mummy's Mask and Tyrant's Grasp to PF2 for Hell's Rebels, was everyone excited about the new system or was there any resistance to changing systems? I've been hoping to convert one of my ongoing games from D&D 4E to PF2. 4E. But okay. one out of my three players doesn't want to take the time to learn a new system and without a third player, the adventure doesn't work as well. So I've had to hold off for the time being. Seems like in the TTRPG community, there's lots of resistance to changing or trying out new <laughs> systems. So I was curious how your group handled it, especially for the podcast. I was nervous as <laughs> when Pathfinder <laughs> announced 2E. Yes. Heather, Heather specifically has been like, you know, when Starfinder came out, she's like, uh-uh, no. PF2 came out, uh-uh, no. Well, like, that's because I went through some really... Uh, D&D tends to do crazy shenanigans when they change to a new system like not just okay the rules are different okay the whole entire setting is different now it's been a hundred years and the people in the world acknowledge the rules mm. change mm. magic is different now because of this earth-shattering event the time that of happened. troubles mm. and so <laughs> mine wasn't so much the new rules i was afraid that galarian the setting was going to implode yes Mm -hmm. That the things yeah. we like so much about Galarian. Okay, so how big's the time skip? What happened? Are they going to have to reprint all of the lore books? That's yeah, always it's a like, fun okay, yeah. so okay, so all the lore books are 100 years out of date now. So all my Pathfinder 1E stuff is useless because none of that stuff is relevant to 2E anymore at all. Like not even mm -hmm. the lore. Yep. So that was that's always my hesitance when I hear of a like an addition update. It's not even yeah. so much the rules. It's the... Are you acknowledging that things are different? And in Pathfinder, no, they didn't. There was no rules change as far as the p people are concerned. Nothing is different. Yes. It's just, you know, things continue on like normal. Mm. Heather and I, and I believe Ross as well, uh, are all veterans of the edition wars. Yeah, <laughs> we rem we remember we remember AD and D to three point first class corporal yeah. Ross Goggin of the edition. I learned to play yeah. AD and D. Yeah, mm -hmm. and obviously you know we remember the three point five to four point D and D, considering yeah. that you know we tried four didn't like it, and that's why we were in Pathfinder. Yeah, the way mm -hmm. they streamlined everything. I just, I wasn't a fan, and that is that is what took us to Pathfinder, especially because, yes. you know, a lot of the people that work that worked at Paizo, some of them still do, were on the, you know, Dungeon and Dragon magazine, so it was people mm. we knew. Yes. So it's like, we know we like their stuff, let's just give, they made this new setting because a lot of them were let go from Wizards when they redid the rules for 4E, so I was like, well, let's just follow the people we like with rules that are Pathfinder 1E. A lot of people called it D&D 3.75 because yeah. they took the 3.5 rules and even tweaked them a little bit more. So it was a system we were already mostly familiar with. It was just really, OK, we're not in the Forgotten Realms anymore. Let's mm. learn this new world. Fun short anecdote here. Uh, again, I was so invested in D&D 3.5 that uh, when we first started to make the transition, because I loved 
Dungeon Magazine so much, I ran the first four books of Rise of the Rune Lords in Faerun. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And then eventually I went, well, I'm, I'm getting tired of like creating all these new places in Faerun. And also this Galarian setting is kind of intriguing me. Yeah. So uh, that's when I decided to make the heart. Honestly, it's because I couldn't figure out a good place to put Corvosa as far as doing personal. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, you know what? Let's just let's just make it Corvosa. I don't want to yeah. have to explain why Waterdeep suddenly has a king. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I think as, as somebody who hasn't had to transition that much, my feeling is a lot of players, we, we invest a ton in this system, right? We buy the books, yes. we're learning the rules, you know, especially in very complex systems like you have in, in Pathfinder First Edition or, or D&D. You put a lot of work into it. And then, you know, when the edition changes, you have to kind of relearn everything. And so there's that that initial resistance to change that's just like, ah, man, I don't want to have to go relearn everything. Like, I, I know how combat maneuvers work now. I don't want to have to relearn the combat maneuver system, you know. And like we mentioned previously, it's easier when you know a guy. But the problem is when there's nobody who knows the rules and it's everybody yes. learning together, it's really, really rocky when you're first learning a new edition. There's a reason why FTP wasn't one of the actual plays that launched with a Age of Ashes campaign the moment it came out is we wanted mm. to have a grasp on the rules before we started trying to do this. That, that was our took big us some thing. Time. Yeah. Yeah. We were like, we're not just going to jump into it because, you know, we have this reputation we built up. So mm -mm, we're not. We're Doesn't not mean we're not going to get them wrong because I'm still learning these. But yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> we, well, everybody we're, makes we're, mistakes. We're not perfect. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but we yeah. knew the rules well enough when Rick started running Hell's Rebels as 2E that there wasn't those 15, 20 minute pauses in gameplay while everyone paged through the core rule book and tried to make sense of what this rule meant. Well, and for you me, know, it's an advantage that. You know, Jess and Jordan and Ross all have a firm, concrete grip on the uh, the Pathfinder 2 rules. And so I can occasionally default back on that. While I've thoroughly read through there, I guess getting back to the this idea of uh, resistance changing systems. When I set out, I as the game master learned, I did my best to learn the rules. And the only thing I ask my players to do is know how to play your class. And I think that that takes a lot of the burden off of the players if you as a game master are willing to take that burden on yourself to learn all of the other rules. Like you don't need to know how the death and dying rules work. I'll explain that when you start dying. I still don't know <laughs> how the death and dying rules work. I'm not going to lie. I don't. Oh, you'll, you'll figure it out. It just means I haven't sure. attacked Cesare enough. So yeah. I've killed Ross, so I know how yeah. they work. Yeah. I have more I of died. an idea than I did before, just because Vittoria has gone down a few times. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. As the as the chaotic person at the table, I love learning new rule systems. I think I'm always I'm always buying them. First of all, I have a bunch of rule systems on the reuse. But then yep. I'm occasionally like, let's just play. Like I think I ran a session of like supernatural. RPG, which first of all exists for my parents and Jordan once, and then like I've run a little bit of 5e. I did a really wild conversion of Rime of the Frost Maiden to second edition. So there's just a lot of like, I think I of this group, I am the as the voice of chaos, um, the <laughs> yeah. most excited to just jump into stuff and see how it works. As probably the most lawful voice in this group. <laughs> I agree with Jessica, actually. I know the rule set for Blades in the Dark. I've never run a game, but I know the rules for Blades in the Dark. I watch uh, I watch rule videos for 5e just you to go. Would. It's like, I'm kind of curious would. about this. <laughs> well, just because yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm interested in it to learn more about the system because I yeah. like to I like to know the strings that control the system um, and see whether or not there is something interesting from another game system that I can implement uh, or even just take away an understanding of the rules to go. 
I think it would be really fun if I could find a way to implement like flashback mechanics or something yeah, else like that into cool. that could be into cool. another system. Mm. But at the same time, it's a uh, there is always that reticence of uh, I'm sure Jordan can kind of agree with this with his uh, computer knowledge. There's always that reticence to touch the code <laughs> in the event that it breaks something. Yeah. Yeah. My God, what have I done? <laughs> it may be terrible, but you know, it's a game. You're trying it hey, once. You know what? We have, like it, we have cool. played things that I, I, I just didn't like. And I was like, we, Numenera, this is we didn't like that very much. We, we didn't like yeah. Numenera as well, a good we example. Liked the you know, setting. We didn't like the rules. God, I, yeah, love the rules that. Yeah. I loved the lore of that place, but yeah, yeah, the rules just didn't work for us. And like, the thing about it is like nothing ventured, nothing gained. So like, if exactly. you don't try it, you may have to put a little work into it, but if you don't ever try it, then you always kind of have that thing in the back of your head. Like maybe the grass is greener. Yeah. Or, you know, at least you you reaffirm that you, you know, you do really resonate with, like, say, Pathfinder 1E, for instance, because mm. I can go to, like, D&D and be like, why are there no prices for things? Yeah. You're going to run into these growing pains every couple of years. I mean, the fact that Pathfinder ran for an entire decade without an addition change was insane is is pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, and obviously, D and D one or one D and D, I can't remember exactly how it's phrased. Uh, is uh, yeah, it's on the horizon D &D. now? Is it one D and D? Yeah, yeah. It will probably well again. D and D five was D and D next when they launched it, and then people just kept calling it five E, and eventually <laughs> that just stuck. So I'm wondering. Eventually, people are probably just going to keep calling this six E long enough that it's going to be six E or five point five. No matter what game system you play, inevitably you're going to run into an edition war because. There are still people fighting the Pathfinder 1 versus Pathfinder 2 edition war right now. Yeah, which is so, silly. Yeah. There are things that second edition yeah. really helped me love about first edition. Yeah. It's it's that whole vacation idea of like sometimes when you go on a vacation, you appreciate your house or your apartment or yeah. wherever you live more because like you don't take the time to appreciate that stuff in your everyday life. So like trying out a new system is a good way to be like, oh, man, I really appreciate how they implemented the three action economy in 2E, you know, or something like that, yeah. you know. Well, and it gets back to the same thing of um, you'll also hear the addition wars between systems or the system wars, basically, at that point, where um, people will talk about Pathfinder 2 stole these things from D&D uh, &D 4 and D&D &D 5 were conversations that are happening. And now that D&D &D 1 is coming out and uh, people are saying, look at all these things that they're stealing from Pathfinder 2. It's like, yeah, you know, everyone's just absorbing these different rule sets. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if D&D if &D 1 eventually adopts a three action economy and and if it makes every game better, fine. One of the things that I hate the most is people, I play D&D &D and Pathfinder sucks. And the other thing, the opposite way too, I play Pathfinder and D&D &D sucks. That's no, yeah. we're all, we're all it's gamers. It's the system you're most comfortable with. Who cares? Mm. As long as you're having fun and you're in this space, you know mm. what I mean? I love the fact that Paizo is putting out the Adventure Path sets for other editions because I want people yeah. to enjoy these stories. And so yeah. the fact that, 5e players are going to get to play Kingmaker and Abomination Vault is great. Mm -hmm. It goes back to the whole idea of, uh, this is somewhat of a small side tangent, every game becoming Souls-like, where a lot yeah. of people are like, why, why does God of War, the 2018 God of War, have the Souls-like controls? Why is Ghost of Tsushima using the FromSoft Souls-like controls? And it's like, well, eventually just determined light attack, heavy attack, block button, having those on your triggers and everything else was just a universal way to run a control so that I can play Elden Ring and then I can immediately play Jedi Fallen Order and the controls are the same and I don't have to learn a new control scheme every time. Just enjoy a different story. And uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, I know we've gone a little bit off topic on that, but if the addition change is necessary for you to have better rules, then do it. If you don't have a problem with the rules that you use, then stick with the game that you're playing. 
There are yeah. literally people out there who still play AD and D, y'all. Yeah, just yeah. take the story. And they, yeah. that would that's their that's their jam. They I mean, if I had AD&D. invested that much time figuring Thacko out, I would probably <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? like, you would literally never change, right? <laughs> I was playing yeah. the Baldur's Gate special editions on my Switch not too long ago, and I was like, why is my AC going down? It took me a minute to even remember that was how that works. Uh, yep. You'll never hit me. I have a negative 12 AC. No! <laughs> I have three and one-fourths attack. I'm like, yeah. what? I'm a murder machine. <laughs> I do like the idea of weapon speeds, but that's notwithstanding. Anyway. So Mason signs off. Thanks so much. You all rock. Keep finding that path wherever it takes you. Long live the Silver Ravens. Oh, thank you, Mason. Long long live live Mason. Our Ravens. very long answers helped you today. <laughs> hey, those were good questions because we could talk about them for a long yeah. time. It's true. And yes, long live the Silver Ravens. Yay. <laughs> yeah, it'll be trimmed down by the time I'm done. Eh, it's all right. We can have a long one every once in a while. It's fine. Sounds good. Uh, so that's it for us this week. Tune back in soon for another rousing episode of Hell's Rebels. Where we investigate a murder. <laughs> yes, where we investigate kidnappings, murders. Oh my. <laughs> and until next time, bye, Pathfolk. Goodbye, everybody. Good, Good luck out there. Bye. Find the Path Ventures is an officially licensed partner of Paizo Incorporated. Hell's Rebels is copyright 2015. Hell's Rebels and the Pathfinder Adventure Path are trademarks of Paizo. All Pathfinder images are property of Paizo and are used with permission. Find the Path Ventures have converted Hell's Rebels from Pathfinder to Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Conversion notes are available to our Patreon backers at patreon.com backslash findthepath. <laughs>